Um, I'm glad you guys are here tonight. We are almost done with our series on growing as a Christian. Woohoo! Um, tonight we're going to talk about the most uplifting of subjects, suffering. So uh, I hope you're ready for that. Um, before we get started, let me pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll get to our texts. Um, Father, we, we do praise you for uh, the, just the power of the gospel and uh, the love of Christ that, um, that surely, definitively saves your people. Uh, there is nothing that we bring, there, there is no skill or, or wisdom that we uh, possess that could um, endear ourselves to you, except that you have set your love on us out of your own free grace, your own prerogative. You have, you have deemed it that, that you would send your son to make us lovely, uh, even as you love us. And, and, and so, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. And I pray that tonight, as we think about suffering, that more than anything else, our gaze would be directed towards the cross. Not just to see Jesus as our example of suffering, and certainly he is, but to see the cross as the goal, the, the hope uh, that carries us through whatever trials we face. And so, Lord, would you help us to grow then because of them and help us to uh, consider your word tonight and to, to be more like you as we do that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, so just to recap again, uh, we've been talking about growing as a Christian. How do we do that? Uh, and I think the, the foundational idea that we've seen again and again and again over the last few weeks is that growing to be more like Jesus means necessarily that we see him for who he is and we know him and we relate to him. And in doing so, in beholding him, we actually become like him. Uh, and, and so beholding leads to becoming, in other words. Um, that, that is something that we do when we open scripture. We behold Jesus. When we pray, when we seek the Lord through prayer, we behold Jesus. Uh, when, when we are gathered in the local church, uh, which is what we talked about last week, we behold Jesus. Or at least that's the goal. That's, that's our aim. That's what we want to do. And that's what we want to propel others to do as well in our relationships with one another. We want to help one another behold Jesus. That's the purpose that we share in our relationship with each other. So this week, uh, I want us to look at how we behold Jesus, how we become more like him, even as we suffer, even as we face trials of various kinds. Um, before we get into First uh, Peter, which is, we're going to be working through that, that whole letter, so just brace yourself. But before we get into that, uh, just a, you know, like a quick thought about suffering and what kind of definition I'm using for that. As you read First Peter, it, it seems pretty clear that, that Peter, in writing this letter to these dispersed Christians throughout the area, that, that he's in particular thinking about their, the persecution that they face, the suffering that they face, uh, in particular as believers, you know, the, the way that their ethic sets them apart from the rest of the world. The way that uh, their values set them apart from the rest of the world. And oftentimes that makes Christians today and certainly then targets for persecution and suffering and, and trials of various kinds. And so I think that is kind of a major focus of Peter's in this letter. But I do think that there is room, and, and I want you to, you know, to understand me. As we talk about suffering, I don't think it's just limited to the suffering we experience as a Christian. But I think sometimes it's the suffering we experience while being a Christian. Does that make sense? Do you see the difference? There's a kind of suffering that you might experience because of the fact that you are a believer, or it's very obviously so. It's more directly related to your faith in the Lord. Right? Um, 
But then there's also a kind of suffering and a kind of trial that we experience that I don't think is any less valuable or any less sanctifying, uh, but isn't quite as like on its face related to the fact that you're a Christian, or at least it doesn't always seem that way. Um, But I think we understand that the enemy that we face prowls about like a lion and will be satisfied to destroy God's people any way he can, whether it seems blatantly obvious that it's because they're a Christian or not. Uh, He would love nothing more than to pull us from the Lord and to cause us to turn turn away from him or for the circumstances we face, the situations we're dealing with, maybe the, uh, the, 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 the doubts that we have. Uh, I think Satan would love nothing more than to pull us away by any means possible. And so I think suffering in general is what we're going to talk about tonight, not just the results of persecution per se, but the kind of bigger picture of anything that uh, would pull us away from the Lord. Anything that would seem like the easy path, the more comfortable path, would be to turn our back on the Lord. I I think any time we face a situation like that, you can say that we're experiencing, in some degree or other, suffering. At least in in the sense that we're living in a fallen world that is so contrary to the new nature that the Lord has given us, that he's called us to live according to. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? I'm talking too much. Um, So, with with that in mind... um, you know, let's, let's look at 1 Peter, which is itself a, just a primer on suffering. Um, as you go through this letter, you see Peter again and again and again talking to the believers that, uh, that he's written this letter to, and it's clear that they are experiencing all kinds of trials, uh, that they are suffering, uh, and that they wonder what this means for their faith, how they should live, what's their relationship to the government that persecutes them? What's their relationship uh, to one another, to the families that they're a part of, husbands and wives and children and uh, em- employers? All these, all these relationships come into focus, uh, and you can tell that there's a very relational element to this whole letter, uh, and especially how God's people relate to a world that's just, frankly, hostile to the gospel. How do we do that? So suffering inevitably comes up again and again. So let me look at a few passages <clears throat> in this letter we're not going to read the entire letter word for word, but uh, let's look at chapter 1, starting in verse 3. I want to read this. This really sets the tone for the letter. This is a greeting from Peter to these believers. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. All right, so when we think about suffering and its relationship to us as we seek to grow and become more like Christ and to know him better, the first thing that Peter points out to us here, and there's so much more, I guess, that we could say, but I, 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 just to summarize, the first thing he points us to here is that suffering should reorient our hope. 
Suffering reorients our hope. And as I go through this list of things, I want to say a lot of things about what suffering does. And you got to understand, there's an element of that, that that there's kind of a choice behind it as well. Suffering can and should do these things that we're about to talk about in the life of a believer. But you understand, I mean, you've, if you've experienced suffering of any kind, you know sometimes it's not automatic. Sometimes it takes a little while for you to get to that point. Sometimes suffering has to sort of do its work in you, uh, and you have to allow it to, to process. Uh, so understand, these things aren't necessarily just going to happen. But I think for God's people, for believers who are trusting in him and trusting in the sovereignty of the Lord and his goodness toward his people, this is the general thing that's going to happen when you experience suffering. So suffering reorients our hope. And you see it right here. I mean, in the very beginning of his letter, the first things that Peter wants to talk about, he talks about this incredible, glorious inheritance that believers have. And I love reading this letter. I love reading that first little three, four verses there because it's such a good reminder that what I experience now, even now as a believer, is not really the full picture of what the Lord actually has for me. It's a taste. It's a sample. It's a down payment. It's collateral. Uh, but it, it's not the full inheritance that actually awaits me. Right, there's something that the Lord has for all of his people that he can describe here as, as, indef- as uh, imperishable, undefiled, kept. And I love that I'm not the one doing the keeping. You notice that you're not the one doing the keeping. It's something that the Lord does. He's keeping this. He's holding on to this. He's preserved it. He's made it so. And none of his plans fail, by the way. He speaks things into existence. He makes plans. He sets about to do them. He sends his son to accomplish them. The Holy Spirit applies them, and, and they come to pass. There is an inheritance that is yours if you're trusting in Christ that that there's just nothing that can thwart it. There's nothing that will unravel it. There's nothing that will keep you from obtaining it and reaching that point. It may feel like it, but there's nothing that can actually stand between you and the love of the Lord that is your reward. There's nothing. And at that very moment, as Peter tells us that very thing, he says, hey, by the way, some of you are probably experiencing trials. I mean, that, there's, it's not coincidental that he's suddenly launching into this explanation of how we face trials of various kinds. I mean, he says in verse 6, you rejoice in this. You rejoice in all this inheritance that's yours, uh, the, the promises that are yours in Christ. You rejoice in this. You can have absolute, utter joy and happiness because of these things as you meditate on this truth, as you await these things, even while, even as you experience trials of various kinds in this world. Man, isn't, that, isn't that incredibly hopeful? But so contrary to the pattern of this world, even, even we ourselves, we wrestle with this tension because we face suffering and we feel like we have met our end. We have seen the ultimate goal, the ultimate trajectory of our lives. Is this how it's going to be forever? Or I'm, my life is as good as done. You have these feelings, you, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. And I think suffering, by the way, is kind of relative to the person and what you've experienced and how much you can kind of handle. I'm not saying there's a specific like, point where you're really suffering. Let's just think in general here. There are points that we all face where we say, this is it. This is the end. I have reached the point of no return. There is no hope for me beyond this. My life is as good as over. Even if you will continue to breathe and eat and live and do whatever. You say, man, here it is. 
But the gospel, it, it shatters that because at that point, when you get to that point, when you experience trials of various kinds and when you suffer for, for, for in whatever you know, the context may be, at that point, our, our aim is, is not to dwell on that, but it's actually to consider the inheritance that's ours. And in that, we rejoice. We're able to rejoice in the midst of trials uh, because our inheritance is undefiled. It's not affected by the trials that we face, you see. It's not, it's not limited by uh, even how we feel uh, in the moment, the despair that we may experience. Uh, these, tr- these, these trials, they, 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 they pale in comparison to the glory that awaits those who are in Christ. Um, so then what happens is, and this I think is, is, is uh, what he's saying here, is that these, these various trials by which we are grieved, by which we are tested, um, they, it's like, it's like they, they, they become a filter that forces us then to, to get a glimpse of the hope that we have in Christ in a, in a more pure, refined way. Uh, and so we, we, we catch these glimpses of light that we might not have seen, except through the filter of the trials that we face, as we look towards the hope that we know we have, even if we can't just always feel the fullness of it, which even on our best days we, we can't experience, right? We're, we're awaiting something. We're awaiting the fullness of God's promises to us. And so he, he says that this, the, the idea is that as your faith is tested and proven genuine, that, um, that this would result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Christ. Um, and I, I love how he uses that word revelation because he, he mentions revelation a couple times here. He, he talks in verse 5 about the inheritance that we wait to be, that we await the revelation of it. He says, uh, uh, we're being guarded uh, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed. And then in verse 7, he, he uses a similar word again, the noun kind of version of it. He says, okay, we're waiting the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation. And when something's revealed, the curtain's pulled back, your eyes are opened, uh, the, the, the cloud is lifted, and you can see whatever it is that you've been looking for, hoping for. And when we experience trials, when we experience suffering, it, it's as if the, the, the veil, even as we experience suffering, it's as if the veil is pulled and we kind of have this, this experience of what we're waiting to fully finally see. Um, he says, you haven't seen Christ, but you do love him. You love him. Uh, you haven't, uh, you don't see Christ now, he says. Um, but you believe in him. And not only do you believe in him now, but you rejoice in him. You find joy and comfort at, in, in Christ and what he's done, who he is. So it's counterintuitive, but it's the truth that suffering reorients our hopes. It, it helps us to see our hope more clearly. It helps us to see where our hope truly lies. Um, so that's, that's our first point. The second point is this, suffering strengthens our association with Christ. It strengthens our bond, our connectedness to him, the link that we share with him. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, um, 
Peter picks up this discussion again. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? As Christians, you're living in the world, and you should certainly be zealous, eager to do things that are good, uh, to bless people, certainly to obey the Lord. That's a good thing. You want to live a righteous, holy life. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Um, Have no fear of them, the people who would bring about this, this suffering in this instance, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. There's that word again, hope. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but, but made alive in the Spirit. Um, think about just how often you, you, know, you face trials, you suffer. Or maybe you've, you've experienced brothers or sisters in the Lord, experienced suffering, um, tragedy, despair. Oftentimes it's, it seems to be without cause, maybe, and there's no apparent reason why this would happen. Um, certainly no like sinful reason. There's no blame there, not retribution. Sometimes you look at the suffering that people face and, um, and you can even say, I mean, this, this suffering is actually, in fact, positively for your own righteousness, like for the righteousness that you display your suffering. And, and Peter, of course, here is looking specifically at that. He says, some of you are dealing with things. You're, you're doing good. You're, you love the Lord. You, you're still suffering, though. And he even says, for righteousness' sake. Um, how often we suffer, and yet unjustly, it seems, or without any sort of reason. I mean, just consider the, the various trials that you face. And yet, in all of that, Peter's reaction is, is not, man, this life is chaotic. Who, can, who wants to even get out of bed? Even the righteous suffer? Even you suffer for righteousness' sake? I mean, who wants to live in a world like that? That's not his response. Who wants to be subject to the whims of people who are, are, are that wicked, that they would, that they would persecute, hate, uh, whatever the case may be, somebody who loves the Lord and is seeking to obey him? That's not his response. His response instead is, don't, don't fear those people. You shouldn't have any fear of them. Not only that, he says, don't even, be, don't even be troubled. But the solution in verse 15, he says, is that we should just continue to set about honoring Christ. He says, but instead, honor Christ the Lord. How do we do that? How does Peter tell us to go about that? He says, by being ready to defend the gospel with gentleness and respect. And you can see how this applies much more precisely to persecution uh, for, for the gospel. But I think, again, in general, as we think about suffering that we face, I mean, we're always tempted to, to, to blaspheme like, like Job's wife encouraged him to do or to hold fast to the hope that we have in Christ, hold fast to the gospel. And Peter's instruction is the same. 
So that you, he says, as you face suffering and trials, even for righteousness' sake, honor Christ the Lord, being prepared at any time to offer a defense for the hope that you have. I mean, for, forget about the circumstances you may be, you may be dealing with. This is, this is a point for you yourself to actually even defend the gospel to an onlooking world, to, to prove its value and worth. Uh, to, to prove how it is even better by far, even in the midst of suffering, than anything else that this world has to offer. And why is that? Because he says our good behavior in Christ, in fact, in the end, shames the world. Even, even the world that would see God's people destroyed and wiped out and hurt and, and suffer for the name, by, by seeking Christ, by clinging to him, by wanting to be more like him, obeying him, being righteous as he has called us to be, and by even defending the gospel that we hold so tightly to, it, it, it displays to the world that we, are, we belong to Jesus. And, and in, our, in and of ourselves, I mean, as we, as we go through that, we cling to Jesus more. It strengthens, I think, the bond that we have with him as we meditate on the gospel, the beauty and the worth, even at the cost of everything, even our very lives, of holding fast to Jesus. Suffering strengthens, or it should, strengthen our association, our, our connection, our bond with Jesus in our own hearts and then, and then before the world that watches. He says in verse 18 that Christ also suffered. He says, for Christ also suffered. Like all these things that I've said, these things are true and important because Jesus himself suffered. What you're experiencing is simply walking in the footsteps of your Savior. As you suffer, as you experience trial, you're not doing anything that Jesus hasn't actually gone before you in. Which is just tremendously encouraging, right? Because as you experience it, you may, you may feel like, man, I am, I am absolutely, utterly by myself. But when you consider that Jesus has suffered... And that by suffering, he, he actually brought about your redemption, your salvation. You think, man, how in the world is this suffering at all going to thwart the plans of Jesus in my life? It can't. Because Jesus used his own suffering, his, his very death, as the means by which I might be made alive. And so he, he overcomes sin and death and hell and, and, and just the results of the fall as he himself suffered so then when we suffer, it's as if we're modeling to the world who Christ is and what he's done. In a strange way. Not just as we hope in him, but, but as we follow in his very footsteps. As we endure patiently and as we trust the Lord and entrust ourselves to the Lord, we display to the world how, how he is so much better uh, than the things that we might be tempted in our suffering to turn to for comfort and hope instead. Paul uh, talks a lot about this sort of thing. If you, if you turn to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, he talks about this concept of living in the spirit versus living in the flesh. And of course there in, in 1 Peter, you notice he says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Because just keep that in your mind. And then you turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 
But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then you turn to Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Paul says this, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourselves, he says, with Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So as we suffer, we follow in Christ's steps, we cling more closely to him. We, we even in our minds and to the world are called to defend the gospel even as we experience trials. Because in doing so, we model for people who, who Jesus is, what he's done. We, we, we display the infinite worth of what Jesus has done. And then by, by experiencing suffering, it, it in some way contributes to putting sin and the flesh to death as we, as we clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ through the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit refines us and purifies us and makes us more like him as we go through the furnace. Uh, we, we display Christ to the, to the world around us. Number three, point number three, and this is, this is related, suffering, it, it should chill our love for sin and warm our love for God and, and his will. Which is so, you know, it's crazy to think about because I, I think you, you and we, if you've experienced suffering, which I'm, I'm sure most of the people in this room have experienced something uh, to one degree or another. You would think that suffering would become an excuse to, to turn your back on the Lord, and, and, and that is certainly the temptation. But you find that even, even as you seek comfort and hope in things that aren't the Lord, people that aren't the Lord, that don't have his power, that don't, that don't point us to this inheritance that's ours. Even as we would turn to those things, we just know sin, the flesh, the passions of our heart, these things, they just don't, they just don't measure up. This isn't what I actually need. Suffering has a way of, of, of refining your palate for the things of the Lord. Because, you, you know, it, it's, like, it's like if you're running a marathon and... Uh, and you get to the end of it and you're exhausted, you're worn out, the last thing you want is you know, a plate of spaghetti and a, and a liter of Coke. Maybe you think that would be good, maybe you think you want that, but within seconds you realize that's really not what you want. Now when you get to the end of something like that, what you want is water, what you need is hydration, maybe something to kind of keep your metabolism going and keep your stomach, your blood sugar up, but you, you, you want the things that are, that are pure, that will help you to recover, that will, that will keep you afloat, that will keep you from passing out on the ground or vomiting everywhere. You, you want something to hold you together. And when we go through suffering, I, I think the, one, of the, one of its purposes, one of the ways that suffering makes us like Christ is that it, it refines us not just like gold through a, a furnace, but it refines the things that we crave, or it should. He, he says this in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. You see, again, he, he's thinking about how Jesus has set this pattern for us to follow. 
Right, since, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And, and look at all these things that he lists out. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they'll give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. When he says preach to those who are dead, I don't think he's talking about some sort of descent to hell to preach to dead people. I, I think it's referring to people who now, at this time in the world, are in fact dead, deceased, that some point in the past the gospel had been proclaimed to, you understand? But that, that aside, the, the clear point here is that as believers, we, we, we live in a world that says, man, pursue what feels best, go after what, what quenches your thirst, what tickles your ears, what satisfies what you think you need and want. As we go through suffering, however, we find that pursuing sin and the flesh and the devil, these things, they ultimately, they don't actually counteract the pain that we feel. Uh, they don't actually help us to get through the suffering we experience. And generally speaking, they, they kind of contribute to it. But, but as we pursue the Lord, as we seek him, as we develop a taste for the things of God, that, that suffering tends to conjure up in God's people, it, it, it means that suffering that has a way of, of wooing us from this world, of loosening our grip on the things of this world, and helping us to cling more tightly to Jesus, and to desire him and to see him as desirable, and to be satisfied more and more by what he offers. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting how suffering can do all that, because again, to this world, the idea is eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you're going to die. Maybe right now you are dying. So live each moment like it's your last and do whatever you want to do. At whatever cost to you or anyone else, go for it. No matter how destructive it may be, go for it. But for God's people, it's like suffering should produce, it does produce the, the opposite effect. That as, we, as we're experiencing things like that, we, we actually lean into Christ more. We behold him more. We, we yearn for him more. And, and then we, we cherish every last drop of gospel truth that we can find. And that's, that's good for your soul. Because it yields fruit long term in your life. I mean, just think, as you learn to cherish every last little drop of gospel truth that you can find when you're in the desert, you know, imagine where you are then when you find that oasis. And, and, and the, the riches of the knowledge of Christ are yours. I mean, you just, you just soak it up. You, you're a glutton for all the things that he has to offer. And I think that's what, that's what suffering does. Number four, suffering improves, proves our faith. Normally I'd say suffering proves our faith, and it, it does. That's what he says here. He talks about the tested genuineness of your faith. But I think it more than it proves it, it, it it, it bolsters it, it, it augments it, it makes it stronger, uh, if, if we'll let it. So turn to chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. 
Um, he says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. See, there, there again, we see Jesus suffering, and it's meant to be an encouragement for us as we suffer. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's that word again, revelation, revealed. It implies hope. and implies looking for something. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Thanks, Peter. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And he quotes, um, what does he quote in here? Proverbs. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, why are we so often surprised by trials? I think that's a question that we need to, that we need to ask ourselves as Christians. And he says here, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as though it's something strange, something you shouldn't have expected, something you couldn't have anticipated. And in one sense, we can't really, I mean, we, we would say, yeah, I mean, like Jesus, our Lord and Master, his life was marked by suffering. Why do we think that by following him, we're going to somehow avoid suffering? Right, I mean, that, that wouldn't make sense. Um, he says, you shouldn't be surprised by it. He says, in fact, are you sharing in Christ's sufferings? Or you should rejoice. Um, he says, are you insulted for Christ's name? You, you're, you're actually very blessed. Are you suffering as a Christian? So you should glorify God. Now, that may seem kind of callous, maybe, you know, because you're thinking, man, you don't, you don't know what I've dealt with, you don't know what I've been through. I mean, it's not just that simple, and it's not. Of course it's not. But I, there's so much depth, I think, then, to what, what we're seeing here, what we read here. Because the Lord knows suffering better than any of us do. Right? I mean, Jesus experienced the, the fullness of separation from his heavenly father against whom he had never actually done anything alienating, offensive, wrong, sinful, what have you. I mean, Jesus knows suffering. And he, he sweats blood in the garden as he anticipates what's to come. And the Holy Spirit that, that led him to the cross and through the cross and raised him from the dead has here inspired the same, these words for us that as we experience suffering, we might consider it joy. That's what, this is what we talked about Sunday morning as we read James, right? Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. It seems kind of flippant, and when somebody just says it to you in the midst of suffering, it's very generally unhelpful and probably not the most you know, kind thing to say. But the big picture is that it is true. Um, and, and that as we, as we suffer, there's an element of this that, that actually proves and, and builds up our faith. So that when you suffer, people who have experienced this, you know there, there's a strange way where the Lord actually, he, he pulls you closer to himself. He, he endears himself more to you. And you consider him more valuable and, 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 and precious and 
uh, and desirable than anything else. So that rejoicing is actually sometimes, sometimes it's easier, even in the midst of suffering, than otherwise. Because your hope in everything else when things are going well and fine is just, it just, it, it vanishes when things are falling apart. And the only one who is not falling apart, the only one who holds your inheritance in his hands without any worry or doubt or debate as to whether or not he can finish the job, the only one is actually still right there. He's exactly where he's always been. And he's eager, eager to, to be in fellowship with you, to give you joy and to sustain you in the midst of suffering. And so we rejoice. You know, we, we consider even, even sharing in Christ's sufferings, we consider it a blessing because it means that we're closer to him. It means that we're more like him. As we suffer well, it means that, that we're becoming more like the Savior that we love. And so in that way, then, then suffering becomes this this moment, I don't want to use the word opportunity because I think we overuse it, but it becomes this very powerful point at which, at which you, yourself, forget about displaying it to the world, you just in and of yourself, you, you grow to love the Lord more and to rejoice in, in who he is for you. So then Peter says that, that judgment actually starts at home, and he's not talking about the judgment of salvation. If you're in Christ, that judgment has passed. But, it, but here he, he's thinking more generally about the, the refining, sort of the testing that all people, but especially God's people, experience. The refining, the judgment that we undergo by which the Lord removes what is sinful and makes us more like him. He says, man, that, that starts with the people of God. It's not unlike in Hebrews where we find out that discipline, like the Lord disciplines the sons and daughters that he loves. It's evidence of the Lord's love and faithfulness, even as we experience suffering and judgment in that sense. And so at the end of the day, then we are called to hear entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We entrust ourselves, we yield ourselves to the Lord. And that's the Christian, that, that is what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to, to trust the Lord, to to have your hope in the gospel. I have nothing to offer here. I am simply trusting, clinging to Christ, banking on him and his suffering and, and his death and resurrection. Even as I die, I'm banking on him raising me from the dead. As I, as I suffer for my own sin, as I suffer from the effects of the fall, I'm banking on Jesus bringing redemption and renewal. And so I'm entrusting myself to him. And, and in that, we live out the gospel even as we experience trials. So then finally, fifthly, suffering reminds us of our association, not just with Christ, but with his church, uh, the people for whom Christ died. And I, I think that's really helpful to remember is that as we suffer, it's not that we are experiencing something so unique that no one else can understand Sometimes that may be true. Sometimes maybe what you're facing is something that other people can't literally relate to. But they know what it's like to feel abandoned. They know what it's like to feel dismayed, despairing of life itself. That's how Paul describes himself at one point. And so Peter here, he reminds us in chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You see that hopefulness there? The, the inheritance that awaits God's people? Casting all your anxieties... On him, because he cares for you. 
Verse eight, be sober-minded, right? Not chasing after the passions of this world. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Verse nine, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. There's, there's that inheritance, right? That hope, the eternal glory in Christ. What, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So right there at, at, at the end, Peter reminds his readers, he reminds us, that as we suffer, it, we, we would do well to be mindful of the brotherhood, the brothers and sisters that we have around the world through church history that have suffered as well, that have shared in Christ's sufferings, even as we share in Christ's sufferings. That's, that's so encouraging because it just gives you such a bigger perspective. I think the worst part about suffering is that, is, is that you start to look so inward and you start to focus so much on your own belly button it's not at all to minimize whatever you may be going through. But it's to say that we can get such a tunnel vision on whatever it is that we're dealing with that we see it as infinitely bigger than it is. And we see suffering, whatever trial we face, as the end of the world. But literally, truthfully, for those who are in Christ, there's no end of the world. There is eternal glory and hope. And, and you see it not just in yourself, but you see it as you witness the lives of the saints around you. And as you remember that in Jesus' death, he died not just for you, and you maybe sometimes wonder, man, is this really going to take effect? Am I one of his people? No, you look around and you remember Jesus died for a whole bunch of people. He gave his life for his church. He loves the church. He loves each individual part of the church, each individual member of the church. He's not going to let his people suffer to the point where they are cut off from him. He, he is not going to abandon, forsake his people. That's true for you. It's true for me. It's true for all of God's people around the world and through time. And that's so important that we remember it, that, that as we remember God's people we know, too, that, that, that the Lord remembers us. Collectively and individually, the Lord remembers us. So let me review just real quick. Suffering reorients our hope. It points us to the gospel. It, it, it helps us to zero in, to squint our eyes until all we can see is, is that focal point. Suffering strengthens our association with Christ, our bond with him, our closeness to him, how we cling to him. Suffering chills our love for sin and it warms our love for God's will, for God's purposes. Suffering proves and improves our faith. And then finally, suffering reminds us of our bond with the church, our association with the church for whom Christ died. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we, uh, we just marvel at your, at your majesty, at your power. We think about the suffering we've experienced, the suffering that many in this room may be experiencing even now, the suffering that surely all of us will face at some point in our lives. 
And very often it seems like these things are insurmountable for us and surely on our own they are. They seem beyond our power to correct or to improve upon. And yes, absolutely on our own, that's true. But Lord, amazingly, and, and because of your great power and, and sovereignty and your grace, you are above and beyond all these things that we, that we face. You see the end from the beginning. You orchestrate the end from the beginning. Not only that, but the means by which you bring us to that end is not without its own purpose. You use these things as ways to refine us, to make us more like your son, to help us to cling to Jesus, which is exactly how we become more like him, by looking to him. Lord, I pray that you would comfort and encourage us, especially people in this room who are experiencing trials of various kinds. Um, I think of just the, the persecution that some in here are facing even now, at, just at work or in the classroom, in their own families, as they seek to honor you with their lives and yet are treated as scum by their families, and the people that, that they interact with on a regular basis. I pray for the people in this room whose, whose marriages are, are utterly falling apart. I pray for uh, the people in this room who are at a crossroads in their lives, not knowing what way to turn, and the, the, the process is just agonizing to figure out. There's, there's a million other ways that we all suffer in various ways, as Peter says. But Lord, I pray that in all of this, you would, you would direct our gaze towards the cross, not flippantly, not naively, as though nothing is wrong, but because everything seems wrong, and the one thing that is right and always is right is the gospel. Lord, help us to derive all of our strength and hope from the fact that Jesus suffered and died for sinners like us, that we might live even though we ourselves die. And Lord, don't we suffer and die every day. Lord, we pray that you would give us resurrection hope and help us to look to the inheritance that is surely ours, that you will bring to pass, that does not fade. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.